Today, I want you to take your Bibles or your apps or whatever you read on. And today, I want you to turn to John chapter 13. John 13. Now, if you're not familiar with where the book of John is located, what I would encourage you to do is if you're in a physical Bible, open up to the table of contents. It's in the very beginning of your book. Uh, and there you'll find that the Bible's broken up into two main sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. John is the fourth book of the New Testament. Testament. So locate the New Testament. Four books in is John. John 13 is where we're going to be located. Now, if you're on an app, what I would encourage you to do is pull down the list of the books of the Bible. Uh, you'll find that John is about two thirds of the way down that list. So, so find John down that list and go to chapter 13. Now, I don't know about you, but as you look at me, who do I look like? What, what celebrity do, do, would you mistaken me for? You know, I've, I've had people tell me that I look like uh, Tom Cruise or Ryan Gosling, you know, and uh, get mistaken by that. You know, people will come to a table that I'm at, uh, at a restaurant and go, uh, uh, do I know you? Are you a celebrity? You look a lot like Tom Cruise or Ryan Gosling. And, and I have to kind of, you know, just shuffle it off and say, no, 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 I, I'm a nobody. I'm nobody important and, and kind of move along with my day. It happens all the time. You don't believe me, do you? Well, you shouldn't because that's a total lie. I don't look anything like a celebrity. I don't look anything like Tom Cruise or Ryan Gosling. There's nothing about this appearance that has any of the attributes of those celebrities. I don't look like anyone famous. Um, let's be honest, my bald head, my beard, uh, my, my looks don't look anything like someone who's famous. But what is my defining feature? You know, outside of my physical appearance, you know, a, a lot of people comment on my beard and my baldness. But outside of my physical features, what defines me? What do people see in me when they look at me and they hear me speak or they see me, you know, interacting at a, a normal function in society? What's my defining feature or attribute. If people were to look at you, if someone was to see you in public, maybe at a restaurant or a store, or maybe even at church, what would people say is your defining attribute? attribute? What would be that thing about you that everyone says, yes, that is so-and-so, that is that person? Well, today, Jesus talks to us about what a follower of Jesus's defining attribute is to be. And so let's take our Bibles and let's go to John chapter 13. We're going to begin in verse 34. So locate John 13, verse 34. Now, let me give you kind of some background on what's happening here. Uh, for the last several weeks, we've been studying about the last week of Jesus's life. And especially here, this is the last night before Jesus is betrayed. And during this night, um, he, he does a lot of things. But a couple of the defining things in John chapter 13 is he washes the feet of the disciples. And then he calls out that one of his disciples will betray him. And then he moves into 
this interesting discussion that we find towards the end of John 13. So pick up with me in John 13, verse 34. We're gonna just read two verses. It says this, Jesus is speaking and he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Wow. Jesus here tells us that the defining attribute of a follower of Jesus is what? It's love. People will know us. They will know that we are Jesus' followers because of our theology? No. Because of the place that we gather together on Sunday mornings? No. Because of the shirt we wear that has a, a, a Bible verse on it or that little fish logo on the back of our car? No. Jesus says that people will know that we are his followers, not by any of those types of things, but simply by the love that we have for one another. So, so what does that mean? Well, first off, let me move from here into today's big idea. If you've ever watched one of the, the messages here at First Southern, you know that most of the time I give a, a simple statement that summarizes that message's main point. And here is today's big idea. The big idea is you are defined by your love or lack thereof. You are defined by your love or lack thereof. Our love or our lack of love is going to be noticed by the people around us, especially if we claim to be Jesus followers. And so let's kind of unpack this for just a moment. Look with me again in verse 34. He says this, just look at the first few words. A new commandment I give to you. But what's new about this commandment? Let's be honest, he's actually quoting kind of verbatim, uh, he's quoting from Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. You know, this is something he's taught over and over throughout his three-year ministry is that we're supposed to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. This is something that's been repeated. So why is this a new commandment? Well, I'm gonna give you four ways that this is a new commandment. The first way is that this new command to love one another will have Jesus as its source. You see, this is a love that's based on how Jesus loves us. You and I have received an infinite amount of love through our loving Savior, Jesus. Because we've received such a massive, immeasurable amount of love, we can go and love others out of that love. You see, those who are loved much, love much. That's the way the world works. We've received so much love, we can't hoard it to ourselves. 
We've received so much love that that love should be pouring out of us continuously to everyone around us. And so since we've received so much love, we can in turn go and love others. Jesus is the source of this new love. And maybe you're watching right now and maybe, you've not, you're, maybe you're not a follower of Jesus. Maybe you've never taken that step to follow him. And maybe this love that I'm talking about sounds really appealing. This, this immeasurable love that Jesus provides. Well, what is this love? Well, Jesus is the son of God and he came to this earth for one purpose, to show us his love. And he showed us this love. The, the pinnacle, the climax of that love expression was that he came and, and at the end of his life, even though he lived a perfect, sinless life, he died on a cross to save you and I from our sins. And on the third day after that death, he rose from the grave. He declared victory over that sin and over death. That is love. And he, he extends that to you. He extends that to all people because he loves us so much. And all he asks is that you believe in what the Bible says about him. You believe in him and you commit your life to him. You commit your life living the way he has asked you to live in your belief and that you in turn go and tell others. You spread that love. And maybe you're watching right now and maybe you've got questions. Maybe uh, you wanna know more about the love of Jesus or what following Jesus actually looks like. And what I would encourage you to do, if that's you, I want you to take your device and I want you to type the word changing to 94000. That's changing to 94000. We'll have somebody reach out to you as soon as possible and set up a time or a phone call to talk to you about what Jesus's love does for you and what he offers to you. That rather instead of receiving eternal punishment, you would receive eternal life and perfection with Jesus. So don't hesitate. Take your device, text the word changing to 94000 and we'll have someone reach out to you. So why is this commandment new? Well, the first reason is that this new commandment will have the love of Jesus as its source. The second reason that it's new is it will now define the new community that are the followers of Jesus. That Jesus says, they will know you by your love for one another. Your love for one another will be the defining attribute of the church. Again, the church is not a building. The church is the people of God. And people will know that we are his church by our love. It is literally supposed to be the defining attribute of a Christian, of a follower of Jesus. So let me give you this illustration. If I'm sitting at my house and a big brown box truck shows up and a man steps out in a brown outfit carrying a box 
and he walks up to my door, I have a pretty good idea who that is, right? You know, I know that the guys that are in those big brown box trucks, in those brown outfits carrying boxes, they work for the UPS company. Because that brown truck is a defining attribute of that company. They have worked very hard to make sure that when you see a brown truck like that, you know that that's a UPS truck. Well, in the same way, our love for one another will let the world around us know that we follow Jesus. It should be so obvious and so apparent that when someone sees your love, when someone sees my love, they immediately think about Jesus. That is how much it should be defining us. Those who don't know Jesus should be able to look at our love and say, wow, that person must be a follower of Jesus. That's how extreme, that's how far our love should go. But the, would the way that you treat others cause the world around you to say this about you? You know, we live in a culture that automatically has trained us to automatically think the worst about other people. You know, I, I, I heard the illustration the other day. We are cultural hypochondriacs. You know what a hypochondriac is. It's a person who always thinks they're sick and they always think the worst case scenario. They, 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 their tummy grumbles and they think they've got stomach cancer. You know, a hypochondriac is always thinking that they've got some kind of disease. You know, we we do something differently. As cultural hypochondriacs, we look at the world around us and constantly think that the world is sick. And don't get me wrong, to a certain extent, because of sin, our world is sick. You'll see, we, the problem is, though, that we look at something small and insignificant and we blow it up into something that it was never meant to be. We think the most ridiculous things because of our lack of love for one another. We approach everyone with anxiety and fear. We don't trust. And that's not love. Don't get me wrong. We should all live with a, with a healthy measure of questioning and maybe even a healthy measure of caution. But the paranoia and the extreme accusatory nature of the way we live today is not biblical. It's too far the other extreme. Think about what the Bible says about love for a minute. You know, I've already mentioned it. Uh, Jesus says that the second greatest commandment under love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, the second com greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. So that's found in Matthew 22, verse 39. But how does the Bible define love? We'll go to 1 Corinthians 13, verses four through seven. It says that love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant and it is not rude. It does not insist on its own way. 
It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. That is how we should behave and approach every person in our society is with these attributes. But could you say honestly that you're a patient person? I think that some of us struggle to even be kind. Even though kindness is not just mentioned here as an attribute of love, but if you go in the book of Galatians, it's listed as a fruit of the spirit, the, the things that we are called to basically be producing in our lives. It doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. I mean, we live in a society that that makes us think, no matter what we believe, that rudeness is okay. No, that's never okay for the follower of Jesus. We're called to love. Let me spin it this way for just a moment. You see, as a follower of Jesus, we're called to love everyone in all situations whether we disagree with them, even if they are our enemy, we're called to love them. Go read the teachings of Jesus. He black and white lays this out for us. There's no gray area in this application. But the fact of the matter is, is love assumes the best. Love, when they see someone or they hear something about someone or they, they hear a statement from someone, love is supposed to be assuming the best of that person. You don't assume the worst about yourself. So why do we think that it's okay to assume the worst about the people around us that Jesus is saying we're supposed to be loving. So love assumes the best. Love hopes for the best. You know, you don't hope for the worst things to happen to you. So why would it be okay to hope the worst for someone else? You know, love rejoices in the truth. It rejoices in the best you know, you don't rejoice when you receive bad things. And so why would it be okay to rejoice when someone else receives bad things? Why do we assume the worst? Why do we hope the worst? Why do we rejoice when people receive the worst? That's not love. So why is this commandment new? It's it has Jesus as its source. It will be the defining attribute of the church, the, the community of Jesus followers. Thirdly, it will be selfless and sacrificial. You know, Jesus himself, as the example of love, laid his life down for you and I so that we could be forgiven of our sins. He tells us himself later on in the book of John, that love is laying down your life for another. Love is selfless 
and sacrificial. The idea of love is to simply treat each other in a nice way. But the love of Jesus is so much more than that. It's a love that doesn't just be nice. The love of Jesus literally puts everyone else before us. In your life and in my life, we're called to put others first, not ourselves. That's an act of love. This new love that has Jesus at its source. Putting ourselves aside for the sake of others. Biblically, we call this humility. Putting others first. Thinking uh, of ourselves not as highly as we, we, we sometimes do because of our pride, but instead recognizing that we're no better than anybody else. Love is the force, the power behind humility. So love defines us. It is the defining attribute of the follower of Jesus. So why is this commandment new? It will have Jesus as its source. It will define the church, the community of Jesus followers. It will be selfless and sacrificial. And lastly, it will be forgiving. I mean, the fact that Jesus died on a cross so that we could be forgiven of our sins, that is love. And he in turn asks us to love others in the same way. Go to Matthew 6 and read the Lord's Prayer. And there are, there are a couple of verses right after the Lord's Prayer. And in those two passages, Jesus says that if we're not willing to forgive others of their sins, then our Father in heaven won't be willing to forgive us of ours. You see, we've received so much forgiveness that God expects us to forgive others. God has given us so much forgiveness that the least we can do is forgive the few things that someone has done against us. And love is the same way. We've received so much love, an immeasurable amount of love, that the least we can do is love others. We've gotten so much love that love should just pour out of us. But one way that we show love is by forgiving. So we need to look at the grudges that we hold on to. And we need to go to the Lord and ask him, God, help me in the forgiveness that I've received. Help me to let go of this grudge and forgive this person. You know, Jesus forgave all his disciples. You know, right after what we're reading today, Jesus is about to go and be betrayed. And he's gonna hang on a cross and die, just as I've been talking about. And you know what his disciples do in this short amount of time when he's betrayed and he's dying on a cross? They abandon him. I mean, it's very a popular idea from the Bible. The popular teaching is that Peter actually knowingly denies even knowing Jesus during this time period. He denies him three times. Did Jesus hold that against Peter? Did that disqualify Peter from the plan and the purpose that Jesus had for him? No. All of those disciples, even though they ran away and they weren't there for Jesus in that moment, 
even though they did that, they still were used by God. And you know why God did that? Because of his love for them. He forgave all of them. And he calls us in turn to forgive others. So I think this brings us to the how. We've talked about what this love is and how it's a new commandment, but how do we love in the way that this passage is calling us to love? How do we love like Jesus? Well, I think there are some ideas here that we can glean from this passage and others that will help us understand what love looks like in a practical way. And the first one is this. I think it, we need to begin with Matthew 7, 12. Matthew 7, 12 says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. This is the golden rule. Go read Matthew 7, 12. You see, it's the idea that if the roles were reversed in the situation that you're seeing or that you're in, if those roles were reversed, how would you want to be treated? How would Jesus treat the person that we're seeing in this situation? So I think that we need to stop for a moment. And when we are in a situation where loving may be difficult, we need to stop and ask ourselves, how would I want to be treated if I were in their shoes? Or better yet, how would Jesus treat that person if Jesus was in my shoes? So we, we need to begin with that idea that, that Jesus calls us to think about what he would do or how we would want to be treated. I think the second way that we can overcome the temptation to be unloving is to intentionally and, and mindfully seek unity. We need to actively be going and seeking unity. Interesting thing about unity. Did you know that every single book of the New Testament, the, the part of the Bible that we're in today, the last third of the Bible, did you know that every single book of the New Testament, except for maybe Philemon, depending on how you interpret some of the book of Philemon, every single book except for Philemon talks about the importance of the unity of the church, the unity of the body of Jesus, the body of Christ. Did you know that? Guys, I don't know about you, but if every single book of the New Testament mentions and talks about the importance of unity, I think we probably better be united. I think we probably better be actively seeking unity within the church. The passage that I think really speaks to this strongly is found in Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, and it says this. Paul is speaking and he says, I, therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility. There's that word that we mentioned earlier. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body and one spirit, 
just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Wow, that is a passage about unity. That is so clear. Listen to the beginning of this passage again. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling, which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love and eager to maintain unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Do we actively do that? Do you actively do that? Do you actively, with humility and gentleness, with patience, do you actively bear with one another in love? Do you actively and with eagerness seek to maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. I'll be honest, I think this is something that probably all of us have struggled with at one point or another. It's difficult to be humble and gentle. It's difficult to be patient. It is definitely difficult to bear with one another in love, to seek, to maintain, to be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit within the bond of peace. I think all of those things are difficult because of our sinful nature. We struggle to do these things. But Ephesians 4 makes it clear that this is our calling as the body of Christ, as the church. Now, let me clarify something very quickly here because I think this had this topic that I'm about to address has created the most amount of confusion about being united as the body of Christ. And it's this, I think all too often people confuse unity and uniformity. And there's a, there's a vast difference between unity and uniformity. You see, we're called as the church to be united, but not necessarily to be uniform. There's a big difference between those two ideas. You see, uniformity means that we look and believe everything exactly the same. If you were to uh, go to a school that has a uniform dress code, that means that every boy looks exactly like the other boys. Every girl is dressed like the other girls. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. That's not what Ephesians 4 and the rest of the New Testament teaches. We're not called to look exactly the same and believe every little thing the exact same way. We're called to be united in love through the bond of peace, through the Spirit. You know, we must agree on the essentials of our faith. Uh, for example, we need to agree on the Trinity, that God's word is the standard for our beliefs, that Jesus is as the son of God and as our savior is the only way to have eternal life. And we need to believe that all of us 
need Jesus as our Savior because we're all sinners. You know, those are examples of the essential things that we do need to be uniform on. We need to have complete agreement on those issues. But there are other beliefs within our Christian faith that we can have varying degrees of agreement and disagreement, and that's okay. We're not called to be uniform. We're called to be united, that we live together in love. Even if we have disagreements, we're called to live together in love, that we're seeking through humbleness and gentleness to live with one another in patience and love and unity through peace. That's what we're called to. We don't have to look the same and act the same and sound the same and believe everything the same. We just need to be united under those essentials The Trinity, God's word, Jesus as the son of God, the savior for all mankind, the only way to receive eternal life and that we all need that because we're all sinners. We live in peace with one another through unity. We live in love with one another through unity. You know, we can disagree on politics and things that are going on in our society. We can disagree with uh, things that are happening in other churches. But the fact of the matter is, is we're still called to be united through peace and love and the unity of the spirit. So how do we overcome the temptation to be unloving? Well, Matthew 7, 12, we need to be, treat others the way we would wanna be treated or better yet, treat others the way Jesus would treat them. The second is that we need to intentionally seek unity. And third, and this comes from James chapter one, verses 19 through 20, where it says, know this, my beloved brothers, Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. You see, we need to be not so quick to jump to conclusions. Yeah, I'll be honest, this is the thing that I probably struggle with the most in this particular conversation is jumping to conclusions without having stopped and had time to process and think through uh, the circumstances and the facts about the situation that I'm seeing. The fact is I need to stop jumping to conclusions and I need to stop and think about what is being said I need to stop and think about the viewpoint of the person saying it. And I don't need to respond until I have sought to understand the other person and their point of view. And especially, and this is a big one here, we should never respond to others with anger. We should always respond in love with one another, even if we have a massive disagreement or even if there's a sin issue, it still doesn't justify getting angry with someone until we've approached them with love. Love is the first action that we should always be taking. Uh, Related to this, the Bible also says, do everything without complaining or grumbling. 
And we approach this world as if we should be getting everything our way. And when we don't get it our way, what do we do? We complain and we grumble and we make a big fuss about things. When in reality, love calls us to understand what's actually going on and to seek out the interests of others, not our own interests. So we need to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and definitely slow to get angry. So in closing, I asked at the very beginning, what was the defining thing about you? If I was to go to the people who know you at church and I was to ask them, what is the defining attribute of this person? What would they say about you? Take the physical attributes aside. You know, people describe me as being short and bald and bearded. Okay, put those aside for a minute. If someone was to describe me and what defines me as a person, what would that be? I've actually sought out a few people that I'm close with to ask that question because I want my defining attribute first and foremost to be love. I want people to say that I love the people of God and that I love others. So when people see your actions, when they hear your words, when, if you're on, online, if they see your posts and your comments, do they see the love of Jesus? Do they see the unity that comes from the love of Jesus? That's a question that I think we all should ask every single day of every single moment of our lives. You know, when we're about to respond to someone, when we're in a situation and we're about to take action or say something, I think the first thing that comes out of our mind uh, into speaking into that situation should be, how is this going to show others the love of Jesus? Because that's what's supposed to be defining me. Whether at church or at work or with my family or with my friends, the love of Jesus is supposed to be my defining attribute as a follower of Jesus. But is it? That's the challenge. That is the closing question today is does the love of Jesus, does that define you? Is that what people says defines you? Ask yourself that question today, tomorrow, this week, this month, this year, for the rest of your lifetime. Ask that question. Do people know me because of my love? Join me in prayer. Almighty God, we thank you. We thank you for your love, the love of Jesus, that immeasurable love that was poured out as he died on a cross to save us from our sins. Thank you. We thank you that you love us so much that you would send your one and only unique son to save us. Thank you for your love. 
And Lord, we pray that in that immeasurable love that we've received, we pray that we would in turn give love out. That our love would be the defining attribute of who we are. That people would know that we follow you because of our love. So help us to live our lives in that way. Help us to live our lives pointing people to the life-changing hope of Jesus because of our love. We thank you so much and we pray all of this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.